This is episode number 26 of the Founder Podcast with Julia Hartz. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan, and I am your host speaking to you from Melbourne, Australia. So what's been happening in my world? Just a quick recap, it's the Australian Open at the moment. So uh, I'm really, really excited to hit that up with Emily. I really like the tennis. A little bit about me, I'm actually really good. I don't, I don't like to say really good, but I like to play table tennis and I'm not too bad at it. Yeah, that's that's actually like some of the only sports that I'm really good at or decent at is table tennis or tennis. And uh, yeah, it's summer here, so it's always really good weather at the Australian Open. So what's going on in my work life? Super excited. I'm about to, We're about to launch a product soon. This will be our first product apart from Founder Magazine. And it's going to be a course on Instagram. We've had a lot of success on Instagram of late. We've uh, built a following of 40,000 plus followers in the past nine weeks. And uh, it's just making our business explode like ridiculously, the amount of engagement we have. And these are are real followers, not spammy followers. Some of our tactics might be a little bit spammy, but this stuff works. Yeah, it's crazy like that. Like, you know, I never thought that I could turn this into an information product, but so many people are coming to me and saying, you know, Nathan, how the hell are you doing this? Oh my God, you should package it up. You should create a course. You should do this. You should do that. And I realized that uh, from a founder training standpoint, the brand has to grow and we have to put more assets out there. And we, we're much more than just a magazine. We're a media brand. We're a training platform and we're here to support entrepreneurs and help them however we can. So I'm working really hard on that product right now. It's about to go live at the end of this month. And uh, yeah, just uh, busy away, just making magazine issues, doing some epic interviews, got some really exciting ones coming for you guys with uh, some really big founders 
some brands you would know, never know the founder, and just some really interesting people. So that's what's happening in my world. About today's guest, her name is Julia Hartz, and she's uh, one of the founders of Eventbrite. She started Eventbrite with her husband, Kevin, and her husband, Kevin, is a, a really successful tech entrepreneur out of Silicon Valley, and they started Eventbrite almost, oh, geez, getting close to almost nine years ago. So that company's actually been running for a long time, and they are, if you haven't heard of Eventbrite, it's a ticketing system. So it allows you to host your own events and create tickets and charge, and they are really disrupting the ticketing platform. What Julia shares with me is some really interesting stuff about her and Kevin and how they have a family and how they run this billion-dollar startup and how they manage it all and what it's like to work with your best friend and partner and how you manage that and some really good insights around bootstrapping, you know, what it takes to disrupt an industry, customer acquisition, action items that they've taken to make quantum leaps in their business and also Something that really stood out for me was Eventbrite's early stage strategies for how they treat their early adopters and how they get them to become evangelists for their business. I think you're really going to like her strategy, so stay tuned. I think you're going to love this episode. As always, if you are enjoying these podcasts, if you could please take a second to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, that will be greatly appreciated. It helps more than you can imagine. So now let's jump into the show. So today I'm speaking with Julia Hartz, and she is one of the founders of Eventbrite. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for uh, taking the time to speak with me. You're most welcome. So can you tell me about how you got your job? Sure. So I was, I'm going to go back to my childhood because I think it's really important to take it way back to the roots, but it it will all make sense hopefully. So I was a ballerina growing up and what that means is I'm very good at taking direction and making adjustments. And I wasn't the, you know, the entrepreneurial kid. I wasn't building things and selling them or trying to make a buck off a quick lemonade stand. So becoming an entrepreneur was actually quite surprising for me. It was not something I'd ever envisioned for myself. And the way I got there was kind of a windy path. I, Out of college, I joined MTV Networks as a series development executive where I helped bring shows from idea to on air. And, you know, I got to work in sort of this crazy creative world, but also develop my business acumen skills for marketing and market sizing and communications. And after a pretty brief career, I'd say in in television development, I met Kevin through my boss at MTV, married his classmate from Stanford. And we were sort of the result of that, of that union of that wedding. And I got to live vicariously through Kevin while I was working then at FX networks on shows like Nip Tuck and The Shield and Rescue Me. He was building his second company, Zoom, X-O-O-M, which is International Money Transfer. They compete with Western Union. They're the disruptor in that space. And I really got to, to, you know, see 
the tech world and the tech industry from, from his perspective as an entrepreneur. And I think that's actually what led me to this position in the first place. I think that that was the inciting incident if I were to um, go back to my television days and, and script development. So because I got to live vicariously through him while he was building this company and I was you know, toiling away at my career in, in Hollywood, I really got to see two things that appealed to me in the tech industry velocity. So how quickly everything moves. I mean, things move so quickly here. It's hard to to keep your head on straight. And then two, the sense of meritocracy. So really a sense of importance being placed on what you've done or what you know versus just who you know. And those two aspects really kind of made me understand that maybe I was in the wrong industry. And this was the very old and wise age of 25 it was very instinctual. I had very little perspective. So I decided to make the leap and and move to the Bay Area. We, Kevin and I, after two years of dating, were engaged to be married and I'm from the Bay Area. So, you know, it was a good move to move closer to family. And I was about to take a job as a development executive. So same job at a startup cable network here in the Bay Area that was had a little bit more of a tech then and sort of characteristics called current TV. And right before I signed the offer, I sort of had a chance encounter with Kevin. I say that only in the way that I thought for sure this was going to be my path, that I was going to dutifully apply my skills from my previous career into this sort of slightly different realm, but but same subject matter. And Kevin actually, so I came to him and said, you know, the offer's quite low. And, you know, how compelling is this really? Am I making the right decision? What do you think? And he took that opportunity to be quite bold in saying, you know, you could go work on somebody else's startup for very little money and and work on somebody else's dream, or we could start something together. We could make no money and we could put all of our money into this idea, but it would be ours. And I sort of thought like, well, how does that sound like a better idea? And somehow it did. I mean, somehow I, I, realized that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I just, I tore up the offer and I guess I became an entrepreneur on the spot. So, you know, I went from a window office on the 42nd floor of a very fancy building in Beverly Hills to literally three days later, I was pushing sawhorses and doors for desks into a phone closet in a warehouse in downtown San Francisco. And I remember thinking, why is Kevin so giddy? I mean, he was so excited about this and so positive. And I just remember thinking like, you just got to, at some point you got to keep the faith. And I really had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I just instinctually felt that this was something I couldn't pass up. So I guess that didn't, I don't know if that actually described how I got the job, but that's how I ended up where I am right now. Yeah, no, that was a great explanation. I'm, I'm curious if we can rewind. Kevin, said to you, come work with me, he'd already, you guys had already conceptualized Eventbrite or or you hadn't, hadn't conceptualized it yet? So we were sort of weekend warriors on the idea where, you know, we'd spend just the weekends together. So it's funny because we had never been in the same room at the same time for more than a couple of days because we'd only seen, we'd been commuting from LA to San Francisco and we, we got engaged, moved in together, started a company together, and got married within the first six months. So it was sort of trial by fire. But we had been thinking about ways in which you could democratize industries using the power of technology. And that was kind of what we were 
or what we are dreaming up along the way. Kevin is a serial entrepreneur, so it's in his blood to always be thinking of new ideas. And he had grown Zoom to the past the point of, of funding and into a real financial services company. And he was still sort of itching to try new ideas and not be running a big company. And so at the time that I moved up, he actually stepped out of his operating role at Zoom and remained on the board where he, he still sits on the board of Zoom. And they went public last February. And, and we just started ideating on, on different industries that we felt were disruptable still. And ticketing was really kind of just stood out from the very beginning as a, as an industry that, you know, you can basically characterize it by three, three things, bad customer experience, high fees, and lack of innovation or technology. And we were sort of like, well, that's a winning industry to go after because we can do the opposite of all three of those quite easily. But then we took it one step further. We thought, well, there is actually a huge gap between people who are using, or at the time in 2006, were using you know, email and Excel spreadsheets to manage their guest lists and then collecting checks at the door and people who were using Ticketmaster or events that were using Ticketmaster. And there was this huge gap and really just kind of opportunity for technology to come in and answer the needs of everybody in between that. So we set out to build a product that was accessible and self-service to anybody who wanted to create a live experience and actually make money doing that. When did you guys start working on Eventbrite? So we founded the company officially in January of 2006. I see. And did you guys use lean startup methodology to validate the concept or anything of the sort like that? We did without knowing we were doing it. Uh, <laughs> we absolutely used lean startup methodology. You know, we, we bootstrapped the company, which was an academic decision. Zoom had to raise copious amounts of money right out of the gates because they had to, in a post 9-11 world, had to deal with massive regulatory and compliance needs that that really required them to have huge balance sheets. So Kevin wanted to try something different. And so we, we, we funded the company for the first two years and we actually got to break even by spending less than a quarter of a million dollars. So we were quite lean and it, it was just the three co-founders. So we co-founded the, we quickly found a, a co-founding CTO. So we, both Kevin and I are not engineers. And so we found Renault Visage through mutual friends and he was brave enough to co-found a company with a with a couple, and you know, quite quite talented from an engineering perspective. And so, you know, we just we just bootstrapped completely. And you know, I guess like lean startup methodology. You know, yeah, again, no, we weren't like reading any books back then. We were, you know, using our instincts, which was we should do we should be really scrappy to find people to start using this product right away. And we just did, we didn't sit around and talk about things a lot. We just did. We built and we did and we iterated and we tested. And that's how we started. So there's never a point where we were trying to like prove a concept or analyze a market or, you know, kind of like, I think like dipping your toe in the water is so hard to do in so many instances. And we just didn't have the luxury of time or resources to do that. So we just started building. You mentioned bootstrapping. What advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs and early stage entrepreneurs? Do you think that you should, when you're starting a company, you should seek investment when you don't need it or try and go as, as long as possible without it? 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, all I know is sort of our our own experience, but certainly I have a great perspective having worked so closely with some great entrepreneurs as well as, you know, shadowed Kevin's angel investing and now investing some of my own. But there's there's certain phases in the life of a of a concept. And so I think that being able to get to a place of traction on your own creates optionality for you further down the line. Meaning if you're able to build something and you can show early growth without needing copious amounts of capital or a ton of people, then you're set up for your first raise in a very positive way. So for us, because we had foregone capital, by the time we went out to raise money, we actually had real results to show. And that just frames the conversation. And so in terms of of strategy on funding, I would say try to prove your concept and and actually gain traction and, and show real growth without needing a ton of capital. That's not the magic formula for every company, case in point, Zoom, which needed to raise money to be able to get the compliance and regulation they could get as a financial services company. But for us, we could build a product using open source technology and the lean startup method without needing a lot of capital. And so there really wasn't any reason for us to get the capital. Then when we gained traction and we actually were showing results, we were in a much more competitive place to raise capital on our own terms and to be able to choose the right partners. And I think it's much more about the partners than it is the capital, to be honest. You can get, especially nowadays, you can get money on every street corner, but it's the person that you're actually getting as an advocate and an advisor that is most important and most influential on the success of your business. The third stage, I think, is really around this notion of raising capital when you don't need it. Then it's about managing your balance sheet and understanding how to, in the best the best way possible, future cast when you'll need funding and raise before that. And that's what we've done in our growth rounds. We've raised money when we didn't need it. So again, we could be competitive on terms, but also bring the best people into the business. I, I understand now. Let's switch gears and talk about growth because you guys are achieving rapid growth now. You've done up to $2 billion in ticket sales. I'm curious, let's go back to the start. How did you obtain your first 1,000 customers? Right. So um, I'll correct you just a little bit on the on the metrics. So we actually have done three billion in, in gross ticket sales to date. Oh, wow. In early September, we did a billion dollars in just this year. So it was really exciting for us to see that growth momentum. That sort of feels like a milestone, whereas it took us all of last year to do a billion dollars. So it's exciting. But to go back to the very beginning, you know, customer acquisition and, and this notion of distribution was absolutely probably one of the most terrifying parts of starting the company because we felt that if we could get an early adopter group to start using the product, that word of mouth and sort of this virtuous cycle of people attending events and discovering the product that way would would have some impact on our business. But it's so hard to get people to really believe that until you prove it. (laughs) So what we did was we found an early adopter group in our backyard. So tech bloggers started using Eventbrite organically. A lot of our growth has been organic. So it's really about creating an open self-service platform that anyone can use. And then you're really starting to see the people come on the platform themselves. So in the beginning, that's terrifying because you're like, well, what if nobody uses it? But we were lucky to find, we were proactive in finding an early adopter group in tech bloggers who were hosting meetups. And we actively 
onboarded them onto the platform. And not only were they active users, but they also were, were vocal in, in what they needed and they helped us shape the product. So we were very strategic in that first group. From there, we started, you know, doing sort of classic tactics in terms of online marketing to try to get the word out about what was really a tool back then for organizers. And what we realized is, you know, we were very contrarian in our approach to early growth. I would normally tell entrepreneurs to pick one segment or one category or one geography and really get it right there and then build a playbook from that and go into other categories, segments, or geographies. We did the absolute opposite. We built this very horizontal sort of one size fits many solution. And we just watched what happened. We, we watched what kinds of events were published on Eventbrite. And then we'd lean into those areas. So I would see the organic traffic come through of events being created. And I'd find all these categories. So like in the early days, it was tech meetups on the West Coast and speed dating on the East Coast. And, you know, we'd start buying those keywords and we'd start, you know, creating landing pages for that. And we were just, we were just sort of following our users and then leaning into the categories where we saw traction. And that's how we got our first thousand users. Oh, interesting. And what in the early stages was your best form of custom acquisition? It was really SEO. So because each event page is full of user con- user generated content, we, we were able to use technology to create springboards so that our event pages would show up or do show up very high in the search results in related searches. So not just the specific event, but let's say you have a, a bowling tournament in New York to benefit a the Robin Hood Foundation. You wouldn't have to type in the title of that. You can say bowling tournament New York, and that would show up really high. That drove traffic to the site, and that started to convert attendees to organizers. So what we realized really early on is that we had a sort of what we call the open table analogy, which is this virtuous cycle where attendees were converting into organizers and becoming our top driver of new customer acquisition. So as long as we could we could pull people in to buy tickets, they would discover Eventbrite as a platform that they could use to organize events. And that actually is our number one driver of new paid customers today. Mm, interesting. A little bit like Basecamp. That's, that's one of the reasons how they achieve rapid growth. Right, exactly. So... What marketing strategies would you give to obtain your first thousand customers? Three. <laughs> <laughs> like there's so many ways to hack awareness. I don't, I don't really believe, I mean, we've never had a really, we've search engine marketing or paid, paid search is, you know, one part of our, of our formula, but I'd say it's never been that strong of, of a channel for us. And I think that paid marketing is really you know, it's really difficult in the beginning because you have to be extremely iterative and scrappy and you don't have a lot of capital to allocate. And so I'd say finding as many free channels and being able to really drive an organically grown business is is essential. And there's so many ways to hack that, you know, and, and to find those moments of virality or those those areas where you can turn a buyer into a seller or you can, you know, I was just looking at a, at a company called Bloom That, that is sort of local flower and, and gift delivery, but basically it's like effortless thoughtfulness. And the recipient of a Bloom That, you know, gift is so much more likely to turn around and use Bloom That to make someone else's day better. And so there's that sort of 
hacking that moment of conversion is just sort of one of the things that we think about a lot. Like how do you make an attendee aware of Eventbrite as a tool for their own needs when they need to organize an event or pull people together? And you'd think that's like, you know, well, how many attendees would actually become organizers? It's very little. But when you think about the fact that we have tens of millions of attendees, that equates to a lot of organizers if you convert just basis points. So how did you guys identify the high growth opportunities so your business could achieve rapid growth? Like you mentioned, uh, you noticed early on that attendees eventually became organizers. Was there was there a process or, or how did you go about identifying these high growth opportunities for the business so you could take these quantum leaps? There's no secret sauce or secret playbook. It's it's about one key thing, being acutely observational of your customer's behavior. So we were we were stalking our customers basically and and every behavior they exhibited, we analyzed. Our fifth hire was a business analyst and you know, we took data and metrics really seriously because we felt that there were things that we could tell from our data that we wouldn't be able to see from the surface. And so one good example is you know, distribution and sort of our growth curve in terms of how we got the word out about our events and how we started to drive more ticket sales. In 2007, we had our top drivers of traffic to the site and they were, our, our big bet was that it was going to be all around SEO. So Google and, and Microsoft and Yahoo were big, big drivers of traffic to the site. Facebook started to pop up as one of the top 10 drivers to the site. And this was really in the early days of the newsfeed. And so what we did was once we saw that, we immediately went in to figure out what was driving that. And it was this very manual effort that our customers were taking to publish their event on Eventbrite, copy and paste their event details, publish those details in Facebook as an event to invite their friends, but then link back to Eventbrite to sell tickets. It was very kludgy. It was very manual. But it was driving enough traffic that we were starting to see Facebook as one of our top drivers of traffic. So what we did was we took that data to Facebook and we said, look at this data. Isn't this interesting? Like, is there anything that, that you could do to help us fuel this behavior? Because we knew that it was very important to Facebook that their news feed reflect real life events, right? They were starting to become overtaken by the games of the world and the sort of virtual world. And they wanted it to be a real life news feed. So they gave us early access to their events API. And this was before Facebook Connect launched. And so we were able to actually make that action of copying, pasting, and republishing an event a one-button push. And then we took it one step further where we turned attendees into promoters of the event. Because what we realized were, you know, events are inherently social as are human beings. And so people want to go to events with their friends or colleagues. So they're more apt to share their events online and their social newsfeed to drive their friends and colleagues to buy tickets to that event. And so we basically just capitalized on that behavior that we were already seeing and made that really easy as well. We, we just built hooks into our service that made it easy to, to social share, which sounds like table stakes today, and it is. But back then, it was actually we were one of the first you know, services to, to provide that and to really get in there and, and leverage that connection. And so the moral of the story is that had we not been acutely observational of our customers' behavior, we probably would have been on top of the curve or behind the curve in terms of social sharing and how that could drive our business. And when you look at our results, 
quarter over quarter, you definitely see an inflection point in 2008 when we, when we nailed, you know, social commerce. Yeah, this is really great. There's quite a few things I'd like to unpack there. One you mentioned around just really being analytical. How often did, did you guys interview your customers often back in the early days? And, and what recommendations would you have around that? Well, I think it's important to, as a founder, be your customer's best friend, therapist, you know, family member. I mean, I would spend countless hours on email and on phone with our customers, primarily because I was the customer support department for the first two years. So because there were only three of us for two years, I was marketing. So finding our customers, customer support, caring for our customers, and then finance, which was really just kind of not a job because we weren't making much money. I would get the feedback from our customers, give that to Kevin. Kevin would distill that and create product. And then he would hand that over to Renault who would build the features in the product. And so, you know, I think really understanding your customers comes from building relationships with them. We still get phone calls on our cell phones from early customers who have our cell phone numbers and who are, I would consider family members at this point. I mean, and I've never even met them. We just have this deep bond of them being, you know, our, our first users and, and taking a bet on us and being integral into how we, how we built our service and our product. But then I think you marry it with data. So, you know, your customers can say one thing, but they can certainly do a different thing that you can realize in your data. And I think if you can, if you can marry the analytical with the, with the sort of substantive relationship that you understand with your customers that you have, you can arrive to a logical conclusion. And I think it's important. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to convey the idea that we just went where our customers wanted us to go. If we had done that over the years, our offering would be quite dense. We would have about 2,000 features, and it would be impossible to create an event on Eventbrite. But I think what we did was we honored what they were asking for. And we, you know, to, to go to your term, we unpacked their feedback. We listened, we took it all in, which gosh, we do a great job of doing today, like in massive volume. And then we looked for trends and ways in which we could, we could answer those problems or those challenges with technology in a way that made sense for our product. Yeah, no, that's great. Another thing that you mentioned was that you guys spoke to Facebook early days did you guys have some form of relationship or, or connection or, or somebody that you knew there that could really help you? Do you think that being in the area that you are in, in San Francisco, that that makes things easier to obtain high growth because you have a lot of relationships and connections like that? No, I think it's, I think the world of technology is so global these days that I don't think it matters where you are, but I do think it matters the relationship that you do build, no matter no matter how far away you are. Case in point, you know, Renault was was commuting back and forth between Paris and San Francisco while we were starting the company, and much of of what we did together was done over Skype. <laughs> so, you know, Dave Morin, who sits on our board, was actually our early contact at Facebook, and so. I think we're very lucky to have made that connection, but it wasn't as if we were in a room with him all the time. You know, we we just had a mutual respect and understanding for each other's business. And I think what we what we were able to really understand through opening ourselves up to Facebook and giving them our data first and really building that relationship was this element of discovery and how to how important discovery is to our 
our business because we were thinking of ourselves as sort of the SaaS platform that was just helping organizers, you know, sell tickets and, and, and the organizers were our customers, but their customers were the attendees. And what we realized at the time that, you know, the, the phenomenon of social sharing came into play was that actually discovery was really going to be the thing that drove our business and being able to facilitate discovery wherever people were sharing information as well as on Eventbrite itself was going to be extremely impactful to our business. Because in the end, you know, we want to help organizers attract more people to live experiences and sell more tickets. But what we're realizing now is that we actually have the opportunity to help consumers discover great live experiences and and actually live more through attending more live events. Let's switch gears again and and talk about failures. Do you have anything that you'd like to share on that front? No, we have nothing to share. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Yes. (laughs) You know, I think Eventbrite has been built on a few core values that are really essential to our existence, which is doing the right thing, (laughs) which sounds kind of simple and easy to understand, but I'm sure you you know that it's sometimes not as easy as it seems. And then really kind of basic human decency, thinking about the person first, whether it be our customers or our employees who we call Brightlings, and really drilling down on how we make people feel. And so that is like an undercurrent that goes across our, our team, our organizers, and our attendees. And it kind of, it's the common thread that binds us all together. And we really, you know, we really value transparency and the notion of learning. You know, we all, we, we're, we're, we're a culture of, of learners. Basically, people are insanely curious and, and always pushing themselves to learn more. And then collaboration. I think that one of the ways that we've been really successful in building this company and building a culture that people point to as a great example is our collaborative spirit and how we're willing to help each other succeed. Can you tell us about the hard times? Like, What what did you guys have to sacrifice and give up to get where you are today? Well, there, you know, there, of course, was the hard time of 2008 where the bottom fell out and everybody was sort of wondering, you know, how bad it was going to get. And we really buckled down and, and because we had built such a lean startup, we didn't have to make any major changes. We did have to keep the faith a little bit, but what we saw were actually, we had some of our strongest growth years in those two years, 2008 and 2009, where we started to see people come onto the platform and start using Eventbrite to generate alternative revenue. So whether it be teaching a class or holding a seminar or monetizing a passion that they had by sharing it with others, it was this really crazy sort of renaissance period. And so like, I think out of that great challenging time came the realization that this long tail of ticketing is super duper long. If you think about it, we're a multi-category e-commerce business that has every category of live experience you can imagine. And then I think, you know, I'll be, I'll be sort of bold and Tara might kick me, but I actually think we're going through a hard time right now, which is we've built a ticketing platform at scale in a way nobody else has done before. So we ticketed over 1.1 million events last year. Those are events that were actively attended. And we have the opportunity now 
to really create the world's first marketplace for live experiences. And that actually hasn't happened. If you think about that on a global scale, it hasn't happened. There's not one place that you go to to discover all the great live experiences in your local area. And so I think we're at an inflection point in the company. And the good news is that we have a rock solid culture. We have great advisors and backers and investors. We have a rock solid business model. But we actually have this opportunity to stretch ourselves in ways that it's just going to be really painful. And I think that what I'm most proud of is that we're willing to disrupt ourselves because we could continue building a ticketing platform that just grows by total addressable market, you know, and we just keep kind of going along and, and, and that's great. Grabbing market share, moving up to bigger and bigger events, saturating metros, you know, I mean that, that, that is sort of the status quo. We actually see this opportunity that's almost ours for the taking. It's so, it's such a, it's such a reach, but it's, it's, something that is organically happening on the platform. People are returning to Eventbrite to discover new live experiences and they're buying more from Eventbrite as a destination. So I think, I think we're, we're in a hard time, to be honest. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So as, as part of disrupting an industry, you sometimes have to almost cannibalize your, your vision or, or not necessarily your vision, but, but your model and the way you're doing things, right? Exactly. And I'm so proud of us for being willing to disrupt ourselves because I think complacency is death. <laughs> <laughs> so let's actually talk about that of, you know, disrupting an industry. What advice would you give to somebody that is looking to shake up a space? Well, I think you have to be fearless and you have to be bold. I mean, that's just table stakes. But I think you also have to find, I, I think that the word disrupting has gotten a almost as much play as culture at this point. I think specifically the industry should need to be disrupted. Like it, it's not a foregone conclusion that every industry needs to be disrupted. And I feel like we've gotten kind of out of hand in trying to disrupt industries that actually don't really aren't appropriate to disrupt right now, you know, and don't really need disrupting. So I think you should first and foremost ask yourself, does this truly need to be disrupted? Am I solving a problem? And I would, I would argue that Eventbrite in the very beginning, it solved a functional problem for organizers who didn't, who didn't have any, anything to use to create a great live experience and to generate revenue off ticket sales and, and to have that self-service ease of use, right? That accessibility to something that could help them create a great live experience. And now we're realizing that we have the opportunity to solve the problem of what am I going to do on Thursday night? Or how do I live more? How do I learn something new? How do I better myself? How do I connect with other people offline in the real world? Let's, also, let's switch gears and talk about what it's like to work. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, what it's like to work with your partner. Let's, let's just touch on that lightly because I'm sure people would find that interesting, right? People do find it interesting. I think I... I think I realize now nine years in why it's interesting because I can, I can imagine a world where we didn't work together and then we were trying to imagine working together and we, it, that would be hard to imagine. But you know, for us, we don't know any different. We started Eventbrite before we even got married. So everything that we've developed in our marriage and our parenthood, you know, our co-parenthood and our, have been under this auspices of being co-founders and partners. 
So obviously I'm a huge advocate because it's working well for us, but I can certainly see a reality where it doesn't work for people. And in which case it's not worth it. Our golden rule is to divide and conquer. So we never work on the same area of the business at the same time. And not only does that help us cover twice the amount of ground, but it also just helps us avoid unnecessary conflict. We obviously are tremendous communicators. So we communicate a lot with each other and that's, that's great and sort of healthy, but we also respect one another and we rely on one another to make big decisions in the company and really empower each other to make those decisions and, and are confident that in each other's skills to play, you know, pretty equal roles. I mean, one of the nuances is that Kevin is our CEO, you know, and there needs to be one boss and any sort of co-foundership. I think it's really important when you get to the to the stage where you need that CEO or that chief that you're very clear about that. But we do co-operate many parts of the company together. I'm focused on people. He's focused on product. You know, we're able to kind of work in tandem and have our complementary skills shine through. And the best part of working with your spouse is you never have to wonder why the other person is in a bad mood at the end of the day or a good mood. <laughs> I see. And do you guys have rules around when you come home and, and stuff like that? Because, you know, I, I know with my partner, once, I, once I'm finished work and I'm spending time with her, you know, it's just kind of, you got to shut off. What's that, what's that like with you guys? No, we don't have to do that because we're working on the same thing. So there is that benefit of not, you know, one person not saying, okay, stop, like, stop thinking about work because, you know, we have equal irrational feelings of love and loyalty for the company. So we don't have rules around that. What we do have, though, is a really nice balance in having children. I think if we didn't have children, we would be probably just one track minded. And, and our having kids is just such a great way to balance you know, work and, and love and play. It's, it's just, I guess for some people, maybe not, but for us, we, we inherently have that balance because when we're with our girls, we're, we're with them. Yeah, no, look, I really respect that. Well, look, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up. I have a few questions around your advice and your level of knowledge that you've acquired as an entrepreneur and, and what you'd like to, to give back to people listening to this interview and, I'm curious, what advice would you give to early stage startups and entrepreneurs? I think, you know, as much as it's important to focus on building something that people want to use and gain traction and proof of concept through through building and doing, I think it's so important to be focused on the human aspect of what of what you're creating. And so for us in the early days, it was about connecting with our customers and understanding them and being there for them and building that relationship and making them feel delighted by using our, our product or by talking to us when they needed help. And then when we started to build the team, it became abundantly clear that the people of Eventbrite, the Brightlings, were going to absolutely be our number one most crucial and valuable resource and the way in which we were either going to succeed or fail. And so I think making that connection between people and the success of your company as quickly as possible is really important. Mm, I love that. You care. 
Yes. Well, you have, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think for us, it's really helped us build a, a company that will be independent and standalone and sustainable over time because we have focused so maniacally on people. If you could give two to three action items, what would those be? So the first is that to understand that your DNA as a founder is going to be present in the company that you build no matter what. I'm so resolute about that because I can look at so many instances. I have not, I've never seen an instance where the founder DNA is not present in a company. It's kind of insane if you really think about it. So rather than that scare you as a founder, you should think about the things that, that you know about yourself or the ways in which you work and decide, you know, what are the few things that you hope to have integrated in the companies, in the way the company works in the culture what kind of legacy do you want to leave in the culture if for some reason someday you're not there? I wish I would have thought about that early on. I mean, thankfully, I think it's worked out, but it's one of those like in hindsight, had I known, <laughs> I would have been a little bit more thoughtful about it. The second thing is to seek great advisors, to think about building a village of advisors rather than trying to find a mentor or thinking about investors from just a capital standpoint, to think about the types of people that you're bringing into the inner circle and think about building a village of advisors. Because it's really important as an entrepreneur to get as much feedback as possible. And it's your job to filter it and to disseminate it and sort of look for trends. And it may feel like data overload, but it's so much more important to hear all sides than just one person's perspective or one side of an issue. And so building that network is really important. And it's also a nice lightweight way of getting a lot of mentors or people who look like mentors instead of trying to find that one magic mentor. Mm, yeah, no, that, I love that one. And just on that, can I, I just wanted to touch on that. How do you go about just having a village of advisors? Is it simply, is it just as simple as asking? It's just as simple as asking. And people are much more willing to have, you know, one one interaction with you that may lead to many to give advice on, you know, what we do is then become a mentor, if that makes sense. Like becoming a mentor sounds very time intensive and like a very big responsibility. We've been really able to, you know, engage people in a very lightweight way where, you know, it's just simply reaching out and asking, but being very specific about the knowledge that you'd like them to impart on you. I actually did this today. I mean, I do this all the time, but I went to Salesforce and met with the head of the Salesforce foundation. And, you know, she talks to startups all day long who want to either replicate the, their one, one, one model or get inspired by her. And I came with three questions that I wanted to ask because I know what that's like to be sitting with someone who just wants to be inspired by you or wants to get, you know, some, some guidance. And, and I want, I didn't want to waste her time and I wanted to keep her focused. And so I think thinking about it from that perspective of being prepared, doing your homework and being specific about what kind of knowledge you'd like to glean or what kind of perspective is really important. One last question on that. I'm curious, who do you learn from? I learn from a lot of people. So, you know, first and foremost, I learn from my partner. I mean, I think Kevin has been my greatest advocate and mentor. If I, if I, if I have a mentor, he's most certainly it by contract and, and by circumstance. I learned so much by sitting next to him and proverbially and literally every single day. 
I learn from our team. I'm constantly learning. There's probably not a, an hour that goes by in a day where I'm not learning something new. So I put myself in those situations to learn many new things about our business every day because I'm curious. And then I learned from, again, our village that we've assembled throughout the years, which include both formal and informal advisors, our investors, our board. And, you know, finally, of course, I learned from our children because when the going gets tough and our six-year-old has this like, you know, we come home super stressed out and our six-year-old has this point of view on either quite literally our business, which she loves to talk about, or first grade, you know, it, it is like... I'm constantly going, oh, right. Like, that's what matters. Or, oh, right. That's like, that's the simplistic view of this, you know? And so I think it's just, it's more of not who you're learning from, but how you choose to learn every single day. Yeah, that that's a great one. I, I love it. All right. Look, um, we have to work towards, yeah, we'll have to wrap things there. But I've had an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Julie. It's been a really interesting, fun conversation and we got a lot of gold so I just want to say thank you thank you I really appreciate the time no I appreciate your time too hey guys I hope you enjoyed this interview as you might already know our mission at founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John Alexa Von Tobel Greta Van Riel and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.